You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Maybe 20 minutes before the service this morning, uh, had a, uh, during the week I've been talking with uh, a few of the men who came and preached while I was on leave recently and uh, uh, had messages back from three of them um, that I read this morning. Just uh, and in each one of them, independently of one another, they mentioned the fact that this church was an awesome church to preach in because of the eagerness with which the people received God's word and the eagerness with which people kind of thirsted after meeting with God and His word. And that is, uh, oh man, that is amazing to hear that. It was such a deep encouragement to me and it's an evidence of God's grace because wherever you see in yourself or in a church, in a family, a desire to know God through his word, it means that God's spirit is at work in their midst. So thank you, Lord. Uh, Thank you uh, for the privilege of being able to preach in this church. Um, We are, as you know, this is the third week in a 10-week series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, in the first week, we began in Acts chapter 17, where we saw the planting of the church in Thessalonica. That's in northern Greece, um, uh, what was known as Macedonia. And uh, um, it, it kind of tells the story of how Paul and Timothy and Silas or Silvanus um, two names of the one guy, uh, how they went into that area of uh, Europe for the first time with the gospel in response to a vision that Paul had of a Macedonian man begging them to come and, and to bring the gospel with them. So they went and what they found when they got there was opposition. In Philippi they were beaten and imprisoned. Uh, in Thessalonica they were chased out of town. So we saw that Paul and Timothy and Silas had about maybe a month there uh, to plant the church, and then they had to get out of Dodge and uh, went south down to Athens and then on to Corinth. And it's in Corinth that Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians. Um, and he's writing to them after he's received word uh, from Timothy, who's gone back up there to check on the church, see how they're doing. He's come back with a positive report about the church, about their faithfulness to Jesus, about how the gospel has taken root there. And he's got some concerns, but on the whole, he's really encouraged. And so we saw that in the second week, last week, in the first uh, chapter of this letter, that Paul's really encouraged by their faith. He thanks God for their faithfulness and um, and he remembers fondly the time that he had with them. Now, today, as we look at uh, that passage that David just read for us, uh, you would have noticed that this is one of the, those autobiographical sections that Paul has in most of his letters. Uh, we saw this last year in 2 Corinthians. Paul um, gave them a lot of kind of autobiographical information, largely to defend his authority as an apostle against all of the the waves of opposition that he was facing back in Corinth. Uh, People who are undermining him, saying he wasn't really an apostle, saying he was just out for money, um, ingratiating himself and so on. So that's the purpose of his autobiographical material, largely in his epistles. Here, there is that. There is the, the sense here that he needs to defend himself, perhaps against people back in Thessalonica who are undermining him, perhaps against the people who ran him out of town, who are now trying to uh, extinguish the movement that he began there. 
We don't know for sure, but there's definitely an element of that needing to defend himself. I think also here he's going to give us a lot of this autobiographical info, a, a recap of his and Timothy's and, and Silvanus's ministry in Thessalonica, um, not just to defend himself and, and themselves, but to give an example of, of how to live the Christian life. Remember, this church that he's writing to had like four weeks maybe with him. Um, not enough time for them to, for, for, for Paul and Timothy and, and Silvanus to really imprint on them and show them the way to live as Christians. Uh, if you've ever become a Christian um, as a member of a family where no one else is a Christian or you've become a Christian and haven't found a, a gospel-centered church to be a part of, you might know how these guys would be feeling in Thessalonica. You have a love for Jesus, you have an eagerness to live like Jesus, but you don't have a lot of good examples of how to do that. So he's giving them an example by recapping, remember, this is how we were with you. Now, kind of imitate me as I imitate Christ. That, that kind of thing is, is one of the motivations for, for this recap of how he uh, did his ministry among them. And then the third reason um, is probably just because he wants them to know that he loves them and cares about them. Uh, and one of the reasons he wants them to know that is because in the next half of the book, uh, so chapter 3 and, and, and 4 mainly, um, he's going to talk a lot about uh, how they should be living and in some cases how they're not living the way that they should be living. And so he's going to give them a bit of a butt kicking in this letter and I think he wants to say, before we get to that, just remember how much I love you. And that's, this is not a kind of manipulative thing, like, I love you, but you're a moron. Like, not, not that kind of uh, manipulation, but, but a reminder, everything that he's saying to them, even the hard stuff to hear, comes from a place of love. And you know, you know, if you've been part of this church, if you've ever come, if, you, if you've ever kind of had to come in to have a bit of a pastoral chit-chat with me, where we've had to go through some hard stuff about uh, maybe some... Um, ungodly behavior or I don't know some, some of you have been in this situation with me you'll know that in every case I will begin that chit chat with a reminder that I love you and maybe some evidence of that like how we've done this together for this many years or whatever but it's really important first of all to acknowledge that in spite of our sinfulness and waywardness God loves us and then for the, the shepherd whose job it is to kind of pull sheep away from the cliff, for, for him to remind them that um, even when there needs to be a firm hand, it's born out of a, a deep love. And so that's what he's doing here, I think, as well. Just reminding them of that fact before he gets to some of the more difficult stuff he has to say. So let's jump into it, into chapter 2. And I'm going to read from verse 1 to three. He says, recounting his uh, ministry with them, you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. So, one of the reasons that Paul needs to defend himself 
Remember, one of the reasons he's giving this, all this autobiographical stuff is sort of a defense of his ministry. One of the reasons he needs to do that here, particularly to these people in that part of the world at that time, is because um, th- there was this reputation that traveling um, rhetoricians or tra- traveling philosophers had uh, in Greece at the time, that, that these were guys who would come into town impress everybody with their learning and with their uh, public speaking and the reward for doing that would come in the form of, of money, of sex, of, of power and praise. The reason you wanted to be a philosopher in first century Greece was not just because it meant you didn't have to do hard work with your hands like just about everyone else, including Paul by the way. He'll mention later that he has to work day and night Um, in order to keep the ministry going. He did that by making tents, which would have been hard work. Um, And and so that was his his way of making money. If you wanted to avoid some of that hard manual labour first century living, then you could become a philosopher. And, uh, and, and so you could walk around town just talking to people and, and, and your reward for that in first century Greece would be sex. Uh, that would be part of your payment, would be young men or young women um, by way of payment. Uh, it would be uh, money, straight up getting paid for this new idea that you've come up with or a, a, a cool way of saying something. Uh, and, and power, power and praise, status. Um, being lauded in front of people. And so because this is true, and Paul looks like one of those guys, right? He's come into town, he's got an idea, he's got a message to give. It's easy for, it would be easy for the people to, to think to themselves, is he one of those guys? Is he here for the, the sex, for the money, for the power? And so in defense of his integrity, he says to them, listen, when we came to you, you know that we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition for our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. We weren't there to feather our own nests. We weren't there to ingratiate ourselves. And the strongest example he gives, the strongest evidence he gives that that's not what they were about was the fact that when they arrived in Philippi, they were treated terribly. Verse 2, on the contrary, after we previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, we were emboldened to speak the gospel of God. So that in itself is a good evidence that Paul wasn't there for his own gain. He wasn't doing gospel ministry for himself. One of my favorite movies is Fight Club. It's got to be in my top five. Movies, also one of my favorite books. Um, Don't recommend you watch it with your kids or maybe even just yourself Um, because there are themes. But um, one of the moments in the, kind of a pivotal moment in the movie is where um, the protagonist, Tyler Durden, says, uh, and just looks down the camera and says, I don't know if he looks down the camera. Anyway, he says, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. And that's the whole kind of conceit of the movie is that these um, young, white, middle-class men who are 
frustrated with the world and disenfranchised by the world and dissatisfied by the world find meaning and belonging and a sense of satisfaction in being having the snot beating, beaten out of them. And, and that's, that's what they end up kind of living for. That is abnormal behavior. Wanting to someone to hit you as hard as they can is, is abnormal behavior. Uh, Paul knows that, and so he says to them, listen, if this was about me, when I got the snot beaten out of me in Philippi and was thrown in prison and treated outrageously, I would not have just come to the next town and opened myself up to another beating. It's a really good evidence that this is not about him. People in countries around the world today whose lives are threatened because they're preaching the gospel have that kind of um, evidence that it's not about them. For us, it's not so clear. You can earn a good wage and have the, the, the kind of goodwill of a lot of people and get yourself on YouTube and podcasts and things just for preaching the gospel in our context. Not so for Paul. Not so for many ministers and missionaries around the world. And it's evidence that it's not about them. And so he goes on, verse 3 to 6. Our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God, who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. This is like a picture of Paul's example of what gospel ministry should look like. This is him saying to them, this is how you do it. As you join in the great commission given to all Christians to build God's kingdom through the sharing of God's gospel, this is what it should look like. This is the picture you ought to have. This is what gospel ministry is. I've got these ideas at the moment about starting a little class for preachers in our church, people um, who want to learn how to put together a sermon. And um, If we go ahead and do that and gather a little group of of future preachers, then I'm going to t- I tell you, like we are going to take that passage I just read and we're going to write it out a hundred times with our left hand and our right hand. It, like this is, th- this should be on a plaque in every preacher's study. This is what gospel ministry from a from the heart of a passion for God's glory looks like. And it staves off this threat to all of us that it will become about us. Gospel ministers don't serve themselves. Gospel ministers serve others out of a love for God and his glory. 
when I was thinking about this last week, my mind just instantly went to my granddad who who had such a rich gospel ministry from the time he was saved as a 19-year-old kid up until the day he died. He, he, he had this relentless pursuit of God's glory through gospel ministry. He, he was never a pastor. He never did it vocationally, but he, he, uh, him and his wife spent many years in, in, in missions work, but mostly he did it through his daily life as an electrical engineer, a mechanical engineer, through their ministry of opening their home for those around them, their ministry as uh, mother and father to a whole uh, orphanage at one point, um, just through like a daily serving of the local church that I grew up in. They lived down the bottom of the hill, the church was at the top, and I would just see him go up and down that hill, up and down, up and down, constantly through the week, doing little things for the church, preparing things for the church, serving at the church. I would see him because we spent a lot of time at their house after my mum died. We'd stay over at their house a lot and I would be woken up. I've mentioned this to you before, but I'd be woken up before dawn by his groanings at the kitchen table as he, as he kind of just bared himself before the Lord in prayer. And I just, like that example is very profound. Because I know that if I'm getting up every morning before dawn to pray, I'm probably trying to just get the light right for the, for, for the social media posts. Like Pre-dawn prayers. Again, hashtag doing it for the Lord or whatever. But every, all of this stuff, this, the, all that stuff that I mentioned, this, the, the fact that his, his wife, my nan, would collect stamps to make money for missionaries overseas, collect pieces of cloth and sew them together for, for the poor to have clothing. Like that example undoes me. It, un, it undoes my propensity to self-aggrandizement. It shows me a better way, a more godly way, a purer, a clean way to serve the Lord Jesus. There's this... Um, this little hip-hop act that I know that no, no one knows about. They're not very famous, but they have this song, the, the, one of the two, they, they're from Chicago in, in, in America and um, from a Latino background, and, and one of the guys, Dad, uh, Jaime, um, is a pastor, and he, they wrote this song about he wrote this song about his father and just he was he was talking he talks in the song about just this desire to want to be someone uh, to want to be big to want to be famous to to be rich to be powerful and how the example of his father undoes all of that desire for self-aggrandizement and this, I'll just read just a, a few lines I'm not going to wrap them this is a few lines from that from that song about his dad he says Jaime Waking up from Sunday to Sunday, consistently serving. Pulpit to the boiler room, liquor store corner to the library, Spanish radio halls to the sick halls of hospitals, serving. Instead of Cadillac riding to the parish, you'd see my father perish, walking in worn-down dress shoes from Hermitage to Glenwood and back, Seminario to the west side and back and back 
again. Almost like back was his forward and decrease was his glory. That kind of upside down counterintuitive way of serving Jesus is evidence that you get it. That's what we saw in the example of Paul. That's what he saw in the example of Jesus himself. One of the best examples, like in just a verse of this, and again, the preachers in the prospective preaching class are getting this tattooed somewhere on their body, like preferably somewhere visible. John 3.30, remember John, John the baptizer? He says, he must increase, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Almost like back was his forward and decrease was his glory. Now, I know, like even with all of that said, I know that in everything we do, particularly stuff that is seen by others, we always have mixed motives. If you stop on the roadside to help someone change a tire, there's no doubt that you have done that because you want to serve that person and help that person. You see them as being made in the image of God, worthy of your attention and time. But also, there's a part of you that wants a lot of people driving past to see you doing it. There's a part of you that wants to snap a few selfies as you do it, or even better, have someone else do it for you, right? That we have these mixed motives. It's always going to be the case until the new creation where all those things are purified. The question is, as we do this gospel ministry, whether it's preaching to a church or serving the poor, like in all that we do, the question we need to ask ourselves are like, where, where are our passions directed in this? What stirs your affections when you're doing that? What's igniting the, the energy that you have to do this or that gospel ministry? It's clear from Paul in this passage that it was God himself that was at the heart of all that he was doing. This is what Tom Wright says in his commentary. He says, At the heart of it all is the approval not of humans but of God. Again and again in this passage, Paul speaks of God. He was bold in God. He preached the gospel of God. He had been approved or validated by God. He was aiming simply to please God and God was his witness that he was not exercising the ministry in, secret, uh, in a secret pursuit of greed. At the heart of it all, Paul has a passion for God's glory. One of the best things I hear when I, when I hear about stuff that's going on in our church, one of the, the most encouraging things I hear from people is when, when I hear about unseen ministry being done when I hear about ministry that isn't scheduled in the church calendar when I hear about and this happens often just the kind of guerrilla ministry of of 
of people in our church just taking up their cross, taking up the call to follow Jesus, walking in his footsteps and thereby loving and serving the people around them inside and outside of our church. That is so encouraging. And it's not because oh, that kind of ministry is more important because it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's unseen and because it's, it's not done for the praise of people. And it's, it's not that. It's, it, ministry is not more important or, or, or more valuable because it goes unseen. All of our ministry, seen and unseen, will be rewarded by God himself. This is a great hope that Jesus gives to us. Hope to those guys down the back right now who are behind the scenes, unseen ministry. Those of you who are ministering to people who don't have the power to reward you or whose praise isn't worth that much compared to the praise of the public, right? All of us who are involved in this kind of secret ministry have been promised by Jesus himself that they are not without reward. It is not a Christian virtue to do good things because you won't be rewarded. That's the product of like Stoic philosophy. Oh, you should do good things and they're better because you don't get anything out of it. That's not Christian, a Christian motivation. We're motivated to do ministry seen and unseen because it glorifies God and he's promised to reward us. This is what Jesus says in, in Matthew 6, right at the beginning or, uh, of that chapter. He says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whether you give, whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you <laughs> as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The whole tenor of Paul's gospel ministry is a Godward focused passion for his glory. For the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so he says in verse 4, Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. And so he moves on and we'll go and read the rest of this passage and, and see what God has for us here. So verse 7 to 12, he says, Although we could have been a burden as Christ apostles, instead we were gentle among you. As a nurse nurtures her own children, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God but also our own lives because you have become Dear to us, for you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, 
and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to live worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You know, the, the Apostle Paul here, he's not just speaking of himself, he's including Timothy and Silvanus, but, but Paul particularly has this bad rap among churches. He has a bad rap of being this, this, this kind of heartless, tough guy, missions-focused, um, kind of just blazing a trail, doesn't care what people think about him, tough guy. And he was a tough guy. You, you have to be tough to turn up in a town, get the crap beaten out of you, and thrown in jail, and then just get up and move into the next town. That's, that's kind of a gospel toughness that is a gift from God that enabled him to keep on going. But what, what, when he's searching for a metaphor here to describe his ministry among them, what does he reach for? What does he get? Look at verse 7. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children or a nursing mother nurtures her own children. That's his metaphor. This would upset some of the kind of the guys who want the church to be a real macho place and where you know we're all warriors for the Lord. There is that. Paul will talk about being like an athlete and a farmer and a soldier, but he also talks about being like a nursing mother. He imagines himself with a baby on his breast when he thinks about his ministry in the church in Thessalonica. Mothers will know what this is like. Fathers miss out on this as one of the most beautiful callings that a, that a human being can have, to take a, a newborn baby and to nourish them in that way, to supply all of the nourishment they need through milk and to see the baby grow as a result of that nourishment coming from yourself. And, and not only just the pure economics of the nourishment, right, calories in, but the bonding that takes place through that act. It's a beautiful thing. And that's how Paul sees his gospel ministry with the Thessalonians. There was a nourishing, a bonding that took place as he shared himself with them in gentleness. Beautiful picture. And he gives us, as the counterpoint to that, uh, not, not, not as in contrast, but as the, the other piece of that picture, he gives us the fatherhood image as well. In verse 11 he says, As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, implored each one of you to live worthy of God. He sees himself as the nourishing mother and also as the encouraging father. The New Testament picture of fatherhood is varied, uh, but certainly one strong image that comes through uh, in the New Testament is that, that the father as coach, right? The father as coach, the, the encouraging, imploring, sometimes rebuking, but all the while shepherding, um, training children to live in the kingdom. 
That's the picture of fatherhood that the New Testament gives us. This is picked up in Ephesians 6 in, in verse 4 where Paul says, Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children. Don't exasperate them, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And so this is how he sees himself. Mother, father, nourisher, coach, um, bonded to them like a, like, a, like a mother with a baby on the breast and cheering them on like a good daddy, training them for life in the kingdom. Beautiful picture of gospel ministry. That's the, the nature of his interaction with them. So we've seen, not about me, but about God's glory. And then the nature of it being gentleness, encouragement, closeness, bondedness. And then the method of that gospel ministry is the last thing I want to look at. So the, the method of this ministry, this gospel-centered, missionary, activated Right, this, this, this church planting, people discipling, gospel ministry flowed out of a deep, deep love for his brothers and sisters. A deep love for those Macedonian believers. Look at it in verse 8. He said, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. I want to read that again. This, like, you could get a whole sermon out of this. Verse 8, We cared so much for you, that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. So he so loves those people in Macedonia. He so understands their value as people made in the image of God. He has connected with them on such a deep level as a mother, as a father, that his response is a kind of methodology of gospel ministry that we should follow. It is a sharing of the good news, a speaking of the gospel, and a sharing, an invitation into life. We are, by our nature, I think, and determined by our personality, prone to one or the other of those things. Broadly speaking, we will, as people, tend towards, gravitate towards one of those things. We might be gravitating to and, and, and kind of shaped to and, and part of our personality gives us to a sharing of the gospel, a speaking, an exhortation, a preaching, and others of us might be more inclined to share life, to open our homes, to open our hearts, to feed, to clothe. Paul says real true gospel ministry that gets it, like at the heart of it, does both of those things. It begins with a desire for God's glory. It experiences a love for his people. 
and then it opens up into a sharing of the gospel word and a sharing of the gospel life. You might be able to think of character choose of this that, that go way too far down one side or the, or, or the other. You know, the, the, the guy in the corner yelling at you and shaking a Bible and saying the end is nigh and you must repent is perhaps badly sharing the gospel of God. But there is no sharing of life. It's a yelling at. It's a, there's a distance there. And for others of us, we might love one another deeply and and have a heart for uh, those in the community and a desire to extend love to them and to house them and clothe them and feed them. But there may never be a, a gospel word shared in the midst of that. There may never be a call to repentance. Paul says, true gospel ministry has both and real love for people necessarily produces both if you really love the people around you if you can see the made in the image of god and valuable like eternally valuable if you see in short if you see people the way that god sees them then it will necessarily produce both of these outcomes. It will produce in you a ministry characterized by, verse 8, we cared so much for you that we were pleased. It gave us joy to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. I told you at the beginning that some people who know what they're talking about had shared encouragement with me about our church, about the evidence of God's spirit at work among us in the eagerness of this church to receive his word gladly. And I've spoken during this message about the little insights I get into unseen ministry that just fills me with so much gratitude to God for you. Another evidence that his spirit is among us is if we see in our midst, not just on the church calendar, but all throughout the week, a sharing of the gospel of God and a sharing of our very lives. Let me pray to that end. Father, I thank you for the example of Paul and Timothy and Silvanus. Lord Jesus, these were sinful men. They had all kinds of baggage and brokenness. They had mixed motives. And yet, the encouragement for us is that you use them powerfully. We pray that you would do the same with us. We pray that you would continue to build a church at Red Door, that you would continue to build the churches around us, the churches around Melbourne, around our state, the nation, indeed around 
this world that you love. Churches full of people who have a passion for your glory. Churches full of people who love men and women made in your image and who out of that love share not only the gospel of God but also their lives. For this to happen, Lord, it will require a gracious act of your spirit. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, minister to us, shape us, make this real for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.